Good morning, church. Welcome to worship. Do me a favor. We have folks joining us online and others joining us at our other campuses. Would you just take a moment and welcome them to worship as well? Now take your copy of God's Word, whether it's written like this or whether it's a, a device, and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, and then find something to write with, a pen, pencil, lipstick, Crayola, your thumbs, whatever you can write with, and find something to write on, because this is a message that's going to go fast, a lot of information, and I think you're going to want to kind of take some of this with you, because it's very practical with what's going on in our world today. Because here's the reality. 15 days ago, like you, I woke up, I turned on the news, I saw the news of this awful terrorist attack in Israel. And as the reports continued to come in, I began to think, what in the world is going on? It was awful. This group named Hamas, who was chartered few decades ago, and in their public charter have made it clear that their desire is to kill Jewish people and to see the nation of Israel destroyed. They went into the land of Israel and they murdered husbands and wives in their beds, children in their cribs. They raped and tortured men and women. And you hear these reports and you begin to think, how can this be so? It's not since the Yom Kippur War in 1973 that the nation of Israel had been attacked in this way. You may have heard the reports that Israel is enduring their 9-11. That's not exactly true. 9-11 was awful. And as I was talking with my two college-age sons Last night, one was born a month after 9-11. I was telling them how the, the world kind of came together, it seemed, at that time. And certainly in our country, everybody seemed to be on the same page, and we recognized evil. While this is evil, what's taking place in Israel, if you look at the population of Israel versus the population of the United States, it's about 30 times the devastation of what we experienced on 9-11. Two weeks into this conflict, it seems like the entire region of the Middle East is in turmoil. And that's not the only part of the world at war. Russia continues to invade Ukraine. The large nations of China and North Korea and Iran have known evil dictators who are making threats all over the world. And you can't help but wonder, what in the world is going on? But even if you look at our media, it seems, like, it seems like what's taking place in Israel is different. It seems like this must have greater meaning to us. And so while we all ask what in the world is going on, we also ask, well, why does this matter to me? Is this the beginning of the end? Because the Bible says things like this, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be natural disasters, earthquakes, and though it didn't make much of the news, the same week that the terrorist attack took place in Israel, 
Two massive earthquakes took place in Afghanistan, killing thousands of people. Is this the beginning of the end? I don't know. Because Jesus said, no one knows. But this is what we know. According to Scripture, Israel and her people are a special part of God's forever plan. And so I want to talk about that from a biblical context, maybe address some of what we're seeing in the news, but help you understand that. Because unless you've studied the Old Testament and understand how that fits in with our covenant through Jesus Christ, you, you may not understand why people would act like this is a big deal. But before we do that, I, I want you just to think about some of the things we as Christ followers owe to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. For example, take out that copy of Scripture that you're holding in your hand, whether it's on an iPad or a phone or it looks like this. All of the Bible, perhaps with the exception of the books of Luke and Acts, were written by Jewish people. All of the Bible. The one we've gathered to worship, the one we pray to, the one we've sung about, is a Jewish Messiah. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He is of the Jewish people. He was born in the modern-day land of Israel, in a city you can visit. Wouldn't suggest doing it this week, but one day we can visit the city of Bethlehem. He lived and ministered in a part of the modern-day nation of Israel, in a region called Galilee. You can go to his hometown. It's called Capernaum. It has a sign that says, the hometown of Jesus you can go stand in the place in Caesarea Philippi where, where Jesus looked at Peter and says, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, I believe you're Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. You can visit these places. You can go to Jerusalem where Jesus spent his last days with his disciples. Where he died on a cross. And you can visit what very well may be the, the open tomb the grave where Jesus' body does not lay because Jesus rose from the dead in Jerusalem. You can go to the southern steps of that second temple and you can see where Jesus ascended into heaven and you can look off just into the sky and you can see where Scripture says Jesus will come again. You see, this is a special place. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's special to you because according to Scripture, Israel and her people are a special part of God's forever plan. Now, Israel is a small country, but it's a big deal. If you look on it, a map of, of that region of the world, you can see how small it is. You can see the landmass of Saudi Arabia and even Egypt and Sudan there in Africa. You can see how big Iran is and Iraq next to it. And above it, how Turkey is, this massive land that we read about in Scripture. And on this map, you can hardly even see this little sliver of land that's called Israel. If you zoom that in a little closer, you can see how Israel is surrounded by all of these Muslim nations, by nations like Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. And you see again just that little bit of Israel. In that particular map, you see that Israel, the Jewish people, lead out in that orange part of the land. 
You see a blue part of the land that is the west bank that butts right up to the Jordan River. And then you see a little sliver next to the sea that is the Gaza Strip where so much of the news is focused today. But this is the same land that we read about in the book. This is the land of Israel in the scriptures. You may be able to look in the back of your Bible and see a map like this that is the land where Jesus walked, where he taught and where he served. You see the names there that are with the stories that we read about in the Bible. Israel's a big deal because we're living in God's kingdom. We're between the already, what you see on a map like that, and the not yet because we know that Jesus is coming back. So when we talk about this, we want to get it right. We're not a pundit on CNN or Fox News. We're not wanting to just tell you what we think. We want to look at Scripture and say, what does a follower of Christ believe about what's going on in our world? And why should it matter to me? So I want to cover this time once more in prayer. So Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of us, Creator, our Savior, we come to this moment with open ears, with open eyes, with an open heart and an open mind, and our simple prayer is give us what we need that we don't have. Teach us new things from your spirit today. Make us different because we're here. God, as pastor of this local expression of the body of Christ, I thank you for the crowd that has gathered. But I know that in this room, there must be someone that has not yet understood what it means to see Jesus as the Messiah. So, Lord, for that person, may this be the day of salvation. For all of us, may we walk away more ready to see you face to face, Jesus. And for me in these moments, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you? Because you are my strength, my redeemer, the redeemer of Israel, the Messiah. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In Genesis chapter 12, you're going to see what Scripture refers to as a covenant with Abram. Listen to the Word of God beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And just that verse is one we've preached on a lot because it really depicts faith in action. That's what it's like to follow God. You don't always have the answers. You don't always know the where, but you know that God is saying, hey, go even where I'm going to show you. Just trust me and do what I say. But we're not focusing on that today. Let's continue. Here comes the covenant. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as far as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. 
He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they'd accumulated, all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. That's going to be important. Remember that. The land of Canaan. And they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Now look in chapter 13, just the next page, beginning in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south and to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that anyone could count the dust. Then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. And then chapter 17, Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan... Where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting, say everlasting, everlasting, everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Now, I'm going to give you a quick reminder of the context of when this was taking place in history. All right? God appears to Abram at about 2000 B.C., we're here today at 2023 A.D., right? So we're about 4,023 years away from this. 2000 B.C. I want to put that in a relevant religious context. Because a lot of people today would say this is a battle between the land and the people of Islam and the land and the people of of Judaism and even Christianity. The problem with that is we know when Islam came on the scene. Do you know when Islam came on the scene? It was about 2,600 years after this encounter with Abram. It was in the 7th century, between 610 and 622 A.D., allegedly, this man, this prophet named Muhammad, re received this revelation from who he called Allah. Let me say this in case I forget to say it again. We don't believe that Allah, the God of Islam, is the same as our God, the God of Christianity and the God of Judaism. This is a different religion. So what can we learn from what took place in the passage we read? God's covenant with Abraham. There's several things I want you to see. This is why the news is relevant, but it's also why it's relevant in your life. Number one, God has always been about relationships, 
with his people. We're in Genesis, which means the beginning. We're in chapter 12. If you go back to the very beginning, in chapter 1, God created all that is, and then he looked around and something was missing. And so from the dust, he created man. Why did God create humankind? He created us for relationship, for fellowship with him. So from literally the first page of the Bible, the God we serve, the God that we do have some religious expressions that allow us to worship, he is a God that deals in personal relationship with his creation. If you talk to people from other religions, that distinguishes Christianity. Other religions don't have a God that wants a personal relationship with them. They can't fathom that, particularly Muslims who are coming from an Islamic background. They can't fathom that God would love them in spite of their sin, that God would want to have a personal relationship with him. God continues that personal relationship all the way up until we meet this man named Abram. He has a personal relationship with the crown of his creation, Adam and Eve, even in spite of their sin. He has a personal relationship with Noah, this preacher of righteousness. And now we're finding out he meets Abram in a personal way. He's a relational God. And so before we know that there's a special land called Israel, we know there's a special man called Abram. And there's a lot of things that God may do in your life that are blessings to your life, but the greatest thing you'll ever experience is that personal relationship with God, and as you're going to see, what Scripture tells us is that personal relationship comes through Jesus Christ. Because of this man, here's what we know, the Jewish nation is the only nation whose origin can be tracked back to one person. Have you ever thought of that? Name the first Englishman. You can't. You can't name the first Swede. You can't name the first Chinese. But you can name the first Hebrew, the first Jewish person. His name is Abram. And God worked in a relationship with this one man. In fact, the birth of this nation really begins with a miracle. Not a virgin birth like Jesus but an old lady birth that was about as close as you could get, right? Because God promises this man named Abram that from his seed, from him, will be this great nation. The problem is, here where you meet Abram, he's 75. By the time God comes back to Abraham and Sarah and says, you're going to have a child, he's about 100. He's an old man and she's an old lady. But God keeps his promise. So that's the second thing I want you to know. God cares about relationship. He cares about people. He's into people. But the second thing is that God always keeps his promises with his people. Our God is a promise-keeping God. Do you know that? When he talked to Abram, did you hear what he said? I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. God's word is full of promises to you. His word is full of promises to us today, just as they were full of promises to Abram. 
In these specific promises, God gave promises regarding this land. And did you know that every prophet in the Old Testament, except for Malachi, every prophet repeats the same promise of land? Scripture's consistent. This is not a one and out. We could spend all morning just reading the references to the land promise for Abram and his people over and over again. Well, what did he promise Abram? Well, it was a personal promise. It was to him. And I just want to remind you, God's promises to you are personal as well. His relationship with you is personal. It's not unusual. I meet someone and I ask them about their relationship with God and they say something like this. I've always been a Christian. And I always say something like this. No, you haven't. That's not the way it works. It doesn't matter that you grew up with a good mama that went to church or a good daddy that was a Baptist deacon or a granddaddy that was a preacher. The the reality is your relationship with God is personal because that's the way he deals with his promises. They're personal promises. But in this case, it was an unconditional promise. It wasn't based on what Abram did. Did you catch that? It wasn't, hey, Abram, if you do the right things, I'm going to make your nation great. Nope. That's not the way it worked. It was unconditional. And that's the way God loves you too. He loves you with an unconditional love. Aren't you thankful that when God looks at us, he doesn't see a summary of all the worst moments of our life? But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he looks at us and he sees his son, Jesus the Christ. It was an unconditional promise. In this case, it was a territorial promise because he literally could draw out on a map all the territory he was given to Israel. And by the way, just for those, if we wanted to get into a geography lesson a little more today, Israel today, the nation of Israel, isn't even coming close to occupying all the land that God gave to the children of Israel back then. It was a territorial promise. It was a national promise. He did talk about creating a nation. It was a reciprocal promise because he said, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. It was a universal promise in that it affects us. It affects everybody still today. He was saying, this is going to affect all of those who live after you. And it was an eternal promise because over and over and over again, he said things like this, everlasting and forever. God didn't say to Abraham, hey, this is good for you just as long as it works in a geopolitical context. He said, no, this is my promise to you forever. So what was the promise? You will be a great nation. You will have a great name. You will be a great blessing, and you will be a great curse. Let me just say a word about that curse. Why would God say those who curse you will be cursed? Because Israel has always been a part of God's special forever plan. And so throughout history, those who've come about against Israel have always ended up in worse shape than Israel. Someone said, the dustbin of history is filled with those who stood against Israel. Now, before I move past promises, let me just say once again, we worship today in the light of Calvary. We worship the promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And as we worship, just like Abram, we're still standing on the promises of Christ our Lord. He's a promise-keeping God. So remember this, you're not saved Because you make promises to God. You're saved because you believe the promises that he's made to us. All right? We talked about God's people, his relationship. We talked about God's promises. Let me tell you, God always also has a purpose 
for his people. God has always had a purpose for his people. Now, our faith is big on purpose. We talk a lot about purpose. For example, you know this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. What does it say? It's a few of you got it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, not of disaster, not of calamity, but of a welfare and a hope. Ironically, do you know when that took place? That took place around what we call the first diaspora of the Jews. When King Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in Daniel, when he came in and took over Jerusalem and pulled the Jews out of there, and the Jewish prophet uh, Jeremiah was talking to the children of Israel, and they were complaining, and they were saying, when's God going to deliver us? And he said, God knows the plans he has for you. It's, it's not for calamity. It's of a future and a hope. But by the way, it's going to be in about 70 years. So, so be patient. We're big on purpose because we know Romans 8.28. What's Romans 8.28? Well, that's not good. (laughs) Y'all know that. For we know God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Right? We're big on purpose. Well, God had a purpose in this. What was it? All the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That was his forever purpose. That by... Blessing Abraham, all the people of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, there's a principle there that we've got to apply. Are you ready for it? If you've been blessed, you were blessed to be a blessing. The children of Israel are special, but God didn't bless them just so they'd be special. He blessed them so that they would be a conduit for blessing to the world. And any way God's blessed you, whether he's blessed you with talent or skill or financially, if he's blessed you, he blessed you to be a blessing. None of us are intended to be a cul-de-sac where the blessing pulls in and stops. No, we're to be a channel of blessing. That should be our prayer. Make me a channel of blessing. Make me a channel of blessing, I pray. Make me a channel of blessing. Make me a channel of blessing today. That's what we should be praying. So have all the people of the earth been blessed through Israel? What do you think? This means yes. This means yes. They're in the back. Yes. Let me just give you some examples. Raise your hand if you've ever taken a bare aspirin. All right. Yeah. Guess what? Bear was a Jew. Have you ever been vaccinated for polio? Jonas Salk was a Jew. Have you ever had a heart condition? The doctor that may have prescribed digitalis, he was a Jew. Have you ever gone to the dentist and had him deaden your gums before they started to drill away? And I know some of us are having flashbacks of Nam right there. I mean, that's, that's awful. Well, Stitcher, who developed Novocaine, guess what? He was a Jew. Maybe you've gotten sick and had the doctor prescribe streptomycin. Waxman, who developed that, a Jew. Have you ever been to a psychiatrist and had psychoanalysts? You know that Sigmund Freud may have been a little crazy, but he's the father of psychoanalysts, and he was a Jew. Have you ever taken vitamins? Funk, the man who developed and discovered vitamins, was a Jew. Have you ever given money to the Salvation Army or received help from the Salvation Army? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had a Jewish mother. Are you a student of philosophy? Spinoza, the great father of philosophy, was a Jew. Karl Marx, the founder of communism, a Jew. Have you ever been married and you took a test for venereal disease? It's called the Wasserman Test. Wasserman was a Jew. The greatest scientist who ever lived, Albert Einstein. Guess what he was? We've all been blessed 
by the knowledge, by the skills, by the artistry of the Jewish people. But what's the greatest way the world has been blessed through the Jews? Ah, you got it right. Jesus, of course. Our Messiah is a Jew. The whole world has been blessed by him. So we've talked about people, and we've talked about promise, and we've talked about purpose. And let me just tell you, God's people cannot be destroyed. God's promise cannot be denied. God's purpose cannot be defeated. Why? Because of God's providence. God has always shown his providence to his people. And that's where this story gets interesting. But first, I need to make sure you understand what providence of God is. Do you know what the providence of God is? It's the hand of God over the arc of history. All right? The hand of God over the arc of history. So, has there ever been a time in your life where looking back in your rearview mirror that you say, wow, only God. Now, let me see your hands if there's some things you think, I would have never made it through that but God. Yeah, if you've lived long enough, you have those moments. Well, what is that? That's the providence of God. In his sovereignty, in his kingship as the Lord of lords, as the God of all gods, he's leading in our lives and he's making a difference. That is his providence. Well, what does that happen to do? What does that have to do with the promise to Abram? Well, let me give you a little biblical history. God promised Abram a son. And eventually... To their surprise, Abram and Sarah had a son. What's his name? Isaac, his son Isaac. But we jumped ahead a little bit because they weren't patient. They didn't wait on God. And so these faithful people, the father of the nations, Abraham, his wife Sarah says to him, I don't think this is ever going to happen. So there's my maid over there named Hagar. Why don't you just go make a baby with her? Hello, That was not a smart decision. But guess what? She had a baby. Remember the name of that baby? Ishmael, born before Isaac. Historians would tell us all of the Arab people descend from the line of Ishmael. All of the Jews descend from the line of Isaac. All right? That should remind us of something. All of today's decisions have consequences tomorrow. Please understand that in your life. We're talking about Israel and we're talking about current events, but man, let me just make it real personal. All of your decisions, you're making them today and they may seem good in the moment. They're all going to have consequences tomorrow. Well, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the Bible tells us that Jacob wrestles with God. And in Genesis 32, after Jacob wrestles with God, he gets a new name. What is his name? His name is Israel. So Jacob is called Israel. And some of you didn't know this. That's the first time we have the name Israel introduced to the Bible. So when you talk about the children of Israel from this point forward, you're talking about those that descended from Jacob's line who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, right? The children of Israel. Well, Jacob had several sons. One of them was named Joseph. Some of you know that Joseph was picked on by his brothers. He was thrown in a pit and sold into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. He ended up in prison, but he made his way to the palace. And he finally became 
prime minister in that land in a very strategic time in history. And so Joseph was an important person in Egypt. But Joseph died. And in the period after Joseph's death, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, they became slaves in Egypt. And 70 years after Joseph's death, a little baby was born, and his name was Moses. And Moses would encounter God at a burning bush, and God would tell him, Moses, your special calling in life is to set my people free. Your special calling in life is to take these children of Israel out of slavery and lead them into what? The promised land. Who was it promised to? Abram, Abraham, right? So you see how it's all weaving together? And Moses and that generation would sin. But guess what? Even though they didn't make it into the promised land, the next generation led by Joshua and Caleb, they would go into the land of what? Canaan, the same land that God referred to with Abram, they would go into the land of Canaan where the Canaanites were and they would enter into the promised land, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, this wonderful land that God was given to his people. But it didn't take long for God's people to become disobedient and rebellious. And as you look at the scriptures, that's what you see again and again and again. It's kind of like us looking in the mirror, right? We have good days where we're walking with God, and then we have bad days where we're like, who are we? We're like the Apostle Paul. I don't do the things I know I should do, and I do the things I know I shouldn't do. And that's the story of the children of Israel. So they're crying out to God for leaders, and so God gives them judges, and they don't like the judges, and they cry out for a king. So God gives them a king, first a king named Saul, then a king named David, then a king named Solomon. And Solomon would come along, and it's almost a thousand years after Abram. That's the time that's passed. Solomon would come along, and he would build that first temple. And God's people there in Jerusalem would worship at the temple Built by Solomon. But Solomon was the last good king. After Solomon, the children of Israel, they had a civil war. They divided. The people that lived in the north, they kept the name Israel. The people who lived in the south, they, they began to go by the name of Judah. And Judah would have some good kings, but Israel wouldn't even have any good kings. And this began the time where trouble began to happen to the Jews. Because it would be just a couple of hundred years later... In 732, the, the Jewish people began to be scattered, and we call that the first diaspora. In 586, Solomon's temple would be destroyed as Nebuchadnezzar would come in and take Daniel and people like him into Babylon, and the Jews would be scattered even more. And then after that, the promise that Jeremiah gave was fulfilled. And so after that, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple walls in Jerusalem began to be rebuilt and the temple was ultimately restored. And that's the temple that Jesus taught in. That, that's why I love to go to Israel today, because you could stand there on the southern steps of that temple and know that this is where Jesus stood. This is where Paul preached from. You could look around and, and see that this is a place near where Jesus ascended into heaven, and right around here is where Scripture says Jesus will come again. 
But in 70 A.D., so 70 years after the birth of Christ, that second temple was destroyed. And since that time, the Jewish people have been dispersed all over the globe. Today, on that temple mount where the two temples used to sit, sits the most sacred mosque in the world. It's called the Dome of the Rock. If you see a picture of Israel and you see that big gold dome, that, that's not a temple or a, a Jewish or Christian place of worship. That's a mosque. And that part of Jerusalem is controlled by the Muslim people. And from that point in 70 A.D., when the Roman Empire came in and destroyed Jerusalem, Jews were scattered around the world. A guy named Hadrian renamed the place. No longer would they be known by Israel. They were going to be known by a different name. He would call it Palestina. He would get this because he was naming it after the Philistines. That little stretch that we call the Gaza Strip today, that's where David would have gone to fight the Philistines. And so this man named Hadrian renamed that Palestine. Palestinians of today were not really there in that area at that time. He was naming it because of that connection with Philistine. He also said this. He renamed Jerusalem. And in that first century, he said, no one will ever utter the name Jerusalem again. (laughs) He was wrong because Jerusalem still stands today. From that time until the 1900s, the land of Israel was occupied by countless people. The longest period of time, it was occupied by the Ottoman Turks, not the Palestinians of today. This continued until 1917, after World War I, when British came in, the British Empire, and took over the Turkish Empire that was there, and they began to occupy that territory. But in doing so, the British recognized that this was the homeland of the Jewish people. And so they declared what was known as the Balfour Declaration, and they named Palestine an area that was safe for the Jewish people, the rightful home of the Jews. But this did not reach its full potential until 1948. After World War II, after the Holocaust that killed 6 million Jews, the League of Nations, the forerunner to what we today call the United Nations, they declared that Israel was its own nation-state. It's not unusual. We're a church made up of people from about 70 nations. Some of your nations have changed their names throughout history. They've been changed because of of different leadership or, or different takeovers. So in 1948, Israel was declared a nation state. And instantly, the Muslims who had been a part of that land began to fight this. When this nation was born... And recognized by the United Nations, there were about 650,000 Jews in the land. Just enough people to inhabit a large city in our country. You know what they were surrounded with? They were surrounded with, this is in 1948, 40 million Arabs. 40 million people who vowed and declared from the moment they came into existence that they would be driven into the sea and destroyed. So when you hear people chant today, from the river to the sea. They're not declaring, give us some of our land. They're declaring, we want the Jewish people gone completely. When you see that acts of terrorism are performed by Hamas, 
you understand that this is a radical group of terrorists who have as their goal the death of all Jewish people and the destruction of the Jewish nation. This changed overnight. Just before Israel became a nation, a Jew could be arrested if they carried a gun. This week on Facebook, I saw that one of our guides from Israel has been put in charge of his small town. Iran is his name. He's been put in charge of his small town just south of Lebanon and in the northern part of Israel. And they're making sure everybody in the town is armed to protect themselves. The Jews have worked hard to protect this land. When Arabs begin to attack from every direction, from Iraq and Lebanon and Syria and Egypt, they attack back with fierceness and might that you could not imagine. Miracle after miracle happened. Like in 1967, the famous war that's called the Six-Day War. They were outnumbered 80 to 1. And yet in six days, this small nation of Israel defeated Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And when the war was finished, they had amassed three times the land that they originally began with. Today, with a small population comparatively in the world, it's the third largest, third strongest military power in the world and the only Middle Eastern nation that produces its own tanks and planes and weapons. All of this for a little nation the size of New Jersey, a nation one-nineteenth the size of California, and a nation that if you could lift it off the map, could sit in the peninsula of our state, Florida, from Orlando to Miami. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because I want you to understand the providence of God. Listen to what this bishop, the Bishop of Bristol, Thomas Newton, said in the 1700s. So about 300 years before Adolf Hitler. The preservation of Jews is really one of the most single and illustrative acts of divine providence. And what but a supernatural power could have preserved them in such a manner as none other nation upon earth had been preserved. Nor is the providence of God less remarkable in the destruction of their enemies than in their preservation. We see that great empires, which in their turn subdued and oppressed the people of God, are all come to ruin. And if such hath been the fatal end of the enemies and oppressors of the Jews, let it serve as a warning to all those who at any time, on any occasion, are for the raising of clamor and persecution against them. You see, the Jewish people in this land of Israel are a special part of God's forever plan. That doesn't mean they can do whatever they want without consequence. No, today's decisions always have consequences tomorrow. But it does mean that when God says, I'm going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, he hasn't changed his mind. For example, just, uh, just think about the Third Reich. Think about how Germany looked after World War II. It's still not rebuilt in the way that it was. Think about where Nebuchadnezzar was. Think about how we read in the news about Babylon. Oh, no, Babylon doesn't exist today, do they? What about that Roman Empire that destroyed the second temple and they came in and they took away the name of Israel and Jerusalem? No, there is no Roman Empire today. No, there's something about the providential hand of God. So we've talked about people, promises, purposes, and providence. But I want you to see where it all comes together. And that's a pathway. 
God always has made a pathway for his people. See, it's not just Abram that God made a covenant with. We're here today because we are God's covenant people. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy to Abram. We've been grafted into the family. Except for a few of us in here, most of us are Gentiles. And yet God grafted us into his family. We've been made a part of his family in a special covenant because Jesus said, I bring to you a new covenant, not a covenant with all these laws, but a covenant that is sealed with my blood. See, the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave, it sealed that covenant that God made with us. See, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abram is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say this in Romans 11. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, Paul was a Jew. He understood as a Jew this covenant with Abraham. But he understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of that covenant. That he was the pathway that God made available to everybody. Do you hear what he said about the Jewish people? That helps you understand what's going on today. I've told you how these people in this land are very special. But I also need you to understand this. that The Jewish people of today... They're not the people of faith that we read about in Scripture. In fact, there's a word that we read there in that passage that I just read from Romans. Zion, they're people of Zion. The Jews of today are primarily Zionist. They are proud of their land. They're proud of that heritage, but they've rejected the Messiah. They've rejected the pathway. And so as we watch the news, we do so with broken hearts because while there are some Jews who have followed Christ and there are some Palestinians who have followed Christ, the, re- the reality is all of that region is made up of people who desperately need the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know the pathway. They need to walk with Jesus. They need to understand true faith. And Paul As he would journey, he would always go to the synagogue first, first to the Jews. And then he would regularly share this message like he did in Galatians 3. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And all nations, he said, will be blessed by you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are still under a curse, as it's written. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on just the law is justified before God. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Did you hear that? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's a good place to celebrate, church. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin. 
That's what the Bible says. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. That's the promise that we have today. Regardless of the family you were born into, you can be a part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. So where do we go from here? How does a committed Christ follower look at what's going on in this world? What should we do? Should we hop on an airplane and go to Israel? I wouldn't suggest that today, though I hope to go, maybe even in a few months. I I love being in the land where my Savior walked. But there are some things you can do today. Number one, in obedience to Scripture, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You heard my friend Robert do that earlier in the service. Why do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. We want that area to be at peace. Psalms 122 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. So we want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Secondly, in light of Scripture, we pray that all would come to know Christ. Did you know there are people on the ground in Israel right now? Some are Messianic Jews. Some are Palestinian Christians. Some are just missionaries from all over the world. But there are people on the ground right now that are not running away, but that are using this moment as an opportunity to point people to the hope of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Did you know that at least four days a week, and on Wednesday, two different times during the day, we have many Muslim background individuals and quite a few Palestinians that come onto this campus. And here's what we know. The only hope for them is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in light of Scripture, we pray that all would come to know Christ. Why? Because Allah is not the same God that we worship. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we want to pray that others come to know Jesus. And then thirdly, in obedience to Scripture, we want to make sure we're ready. Oh, I want to be ready. Ready for what? I read this in my Bible reading this week. Are you familiar with this? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive are left to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. What does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Oh, Christ follower, if you follow the things of Scripture, but you don't hold on to that scriptural truth, you're no different than the Pharisees or the Sadducees of Jesus' day who did not hope in the coming Messiah. We've got the promise that Jesus is coming again. If anything in Scripture is true, Jesus is coming again. Okay, pastor, when's that happening? Well, there's some debate about that. In fact, there's confusion even about the verse I just read. Is that describing the rapture? The rapture is is a word that literally comes from a Latin word that means caught up. So when it says that we'll be caught up with him in the air, does that mean like many believe that the church will be raptured, that before Jesus comes back with the church, he'll come back to get the church? That's kind of what I've grown up believing. and I'm okay with that. 
But I, I've got good friends and very committed followers of Jesus that say, I'm not sure that's what that means, that that's what's going to happen. But here's what we know. He is coming again. He is coming again. So what do we do? When's that going to happen? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. That's one of those passages that kind of confound me, to be honest with you. Jesus is saying, I can't even tell you when that's going to happen. So what do you do? Verse 42, therefore keep watch, because you don't know what day your Lord will come. Did you hear that? It could be today. As I read the Bible, there's nothing left that has to happen in Scripture for Jesus to return. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled for Jesus to return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be in our lifetime, or we could be like the Apostle Paul, who I believe was convinced it was going to be in his lifetime, and he's been dead quite a while. So then Jesus went on to say in verse 43, understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master puts in charge of the servants in the house to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Let me just give you three things before we pray. If you're a Christ follower, you need to be expectant. Be watchful. Man, I don't know when this is going to happen, but could we be closer? No, we are closer. <laughs> we're closer today than we were yesterday. And as I look at the signs of the time, are there wars and rumors of war? Are there natural disasters? You better believe it. I want to be expectant. Secondly, be ready. If you're a Christ follower, be ready. Why would you live as if you're going to hell when you know you're going to heaven? And if there's some habitual sins or some disobedience in your life, stop it. Man, just think this way. Go back to when you were a child and you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing and you're thinking, I hope my parents don't find out. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be caught doing something I shouldn't be doing if he could come back at any time. I want to live ready. And for some of you, that means, to be, you, need, that means you need to start being obedient. You're not living like a Christ follower. You've, you've trusted him with your salvation, but you're not growing in sanctification. You're not getting in the word. You're not being a faithful steward financially. You're not sharing your faith with other people. You're not being a disciple who makes disciples. So start getting ready. Number three, be faithful. Because when you hear what I just said, it can be kind of overwhelming. Just wake up every day and before your feet hit the floor, when your head bounces off that pillow, just say, God, I just want to be faithful following you today. Because as Jesus said, it's good for that person who was found faithful. Jesus is coming again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads together.
In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of praise testifying to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. As we do that, I I want it to be a song of commitment for you. So if you're a Christ follower, man, just really evaluate. Is there any adjustment I need to make? Are you living expectantly? Are you living ready? Are you living faithful? And just use this as a time of recommitment to get that right. But there's no doubt, just as I prayed at the beginning of our time together, that some are here and you're, you've not yet begun that relationship with Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death for you. He died on the cross, not so that we would have a story to tell, but so that you would not have to endure the punishment that you deserved. And he rose from the dead to show that he is the all-powerful God, able to do everything you need in your life. So he's simply waiting for you to call on his name and to trust him. And if you've never taken that step, I want to invite you to do that today. The Bible says if you believe that Jesus is Lord, you believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, when you call on his name, you can be saved. Why not do that right now today? And you don't even need my help. But I'm willing. So maybe you would pray a simple prayer like this. Maybe you'd just say, Dear Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. So I receive your forgiveness. And from this moment on, I'm going to trust in you. So here I am, Lord. Take me as I am. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. From this moment on, I'm following you. I tell him thank you. You stand together with us right where you are. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we're going to begin to sing this song of praise. Maybe you've made that decision to get ready. You just want to come and pray. Our pastors are here. Maybe you want to just kneel and pray as if this were a prayer altar. Maybe you made that decision to follow Christ and you just want to come and tell somebody today, hey, I prayed that prayer and I'm following Jesus. As we sing this declaration, act on it today. Father, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, we declare you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. We, as the body of Christ, we declare we want to live ready. So, Lord, make it so even now for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him. As God moves, as God leads, you step out, you come. This is the gospel. Who knew no sin?